Well, good morning, ECC. All right. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to please open to Luke chapter 19, verse 11 through 27. And as you're turning there, I want to just remind you, as uh, Pastor Cass said, everything is opening next week. And so me, as the Family Ministries Director, I'm here to plead with you and say, I need your help. So if you're willing to serve with our children's ministry or our WANA program on Thursday nights or our teen ministry immediately following second service uh, downstairs, we would love to have you there as a volunteer. If you're a parent, then you could be the cool parent that volunteers with our teens or our children or our kids. So please, if you're interested, please come to me, talk to me. I'd love to talk with you more about how we can plug you in. So let's read together Luke chapter 19, verse 11 through 27, the parable of the 10 minas. It says this, as he heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? At my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. And so God, we ask that you would speak to us through your spirit, Lord. I pray that these words would be powerful and they would be from you, God. I pray that any words that come from my flesh would just fall straight to the ground and die. And God, we ask that you'd open our ears, our heart, our minds to receive your truth this morning. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, I want to talk to the kids this morning, and I want to ask you a question. When your parents are away, how do you act? I mean, kids, teenagers, maybe for the kids, your parents don't ever leave you for hours because you're little. But maybe when they're in another room, how do you act? 
For you teenagers who your parents do leave you for a few hours because they have to run some errands or go to the bank or go to Lulu's, how do you act? I mean, do you kind of feel a load of relief off your shoulders? Like, oh, they're no longer here. Finally, I can relax. Finally, I can just be loose and chill. Now I can relax. Now I can chillax. I can do both at the same time. Is that how you feel? How do you act? Maybe you play PlayStation or Xbox a little more than you should. Maybe you search YouTube a little more than you should. Maybe you take some extra food or snacks or things like that more than you should. So how do you act? Well, adults, I'm going to ask you the same question. How do you act when your boss is away? You know, in the summer when your boss maybe leaves for a day because he's got a meeting or um, maybe a week because he's going to a holiday or what if he leaves for a month, then how do you act? Do you start to feel the same way as your kids do? You relax like, oh, finally he's gone or, oh, finally she's out of here. I mean, do you maybe show up to work five minutes later or maybe take a little extra 10 minutes at lunchtime or maybe slip out of the office? 12 minutes sooner. You know, when your boss is away, your attitude might be to relax. Maybe you get a little lazy. Maybe you lose focus. So how do you wait? You know, there's, there's, there's an article that I just saw, talked about. Um, it was called Quiet Quitting. And what it is, is these employees that actually quietly quit. Now, they don't quit completely because they still want the income, they still want the housing, they still want all the benefits that come with working. But what they do is basically just do enough just to get by. So in a sense, they're disengaged, they're disconnected from work. They're not trying more than they should or could. So as your boss is away, how do you act? You know, we have a tendency to want to relax and do all those things. And in a sense, you and I, all of us in this room, are kind of waiting in that, same, in that exact situation. We're, as Christians, waiting for the return of our boss, Jesus. Right? He was here on the earth. He, he was crucified, and he rose from the grave and ascended to be next to the Father. And now you and I are here in Abu Dhabi, and we're waiting. And we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. You know that old adage, when the cat's away, the mice will play. You know, that's such a temptation, isn't it? And as Christians, we're waiting for our boss. And so it isn't a question as if, as if we will wait, but how we will wait. And so as we look at this passage here in Luke 19, Luke is trying to teach us something through this parable. Now, is he trying to teach us how to make money? No, is he trying to teach us how to be a good manager or a good boss? Or maybe he's trying to teach you how to run a good business. No, he's, he's not doing that. So in order to understand what he's teaching us, we have to understand the context and what's happening in the situation. And so this chapter here, chapter 19, this parable of the 10 minas is somewhat of an allegory. So it's got a hidden meaning in this passage. And so sometimes that can be challenging. challenging. And let's be honest, sometimes parables can be challenging. I mean, have you ever read a parable and you're just like, yeah, I don't know what that means, but I read it, and so check, done, right? And the reason maybe they're sometimes challenging is because parables tend to build on each other or they're part of a larger story. So, for example, uh, Pastor Christian talked about the lost coin, and we'll take that story and we'll be like, yeah, that's a good story. And then we have this story of the, 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 lost, uh, the lost sheep, 
Now, those two stories are individual, but they kind of go together. There's a bigger meaning there. And then we hear Pastor Christian preach about the prodigal son. And that story actually goes along with the other stories. So there's this umbrella theme going on. And here in chapter 19, what we see is, is, is Luke telling us, hey, this is part of a bigger story. And if you go back to chapter 9, what you see is Jesus getting ready to head to this great city of Jerusalem. And along the way, Jesus is teaching He's healing, he's helping people, he's praying for people, he's helping the poor and the needy. And a major theme in the gospel of Luke is Jesus establishing the kingdom of God. And so here we see this crowd, uh, they expect Jesus to be the king, right? And they expect him to build this kingdom. And what we see here is this Jewish man, Jesus, approaching Jerusalem. And what better place to establish your kingdom than Jerusalem? And so here we see Jesus getting ready to enter the city. As a matter of fact, if you keep reading, you'll see the triumphal entry, right? This, this section where we call often Palm Sunday, the week before uh, Resurrection Sunday, where people are praising him. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, here is the king. So these people, this crowd, saw Jesus as the king. But... The reason Jesus shares this parable is to tell them that his kingdom would not be fully realized immediately or then and there. So we have a tendency to lose focus and sometimes be unfaithful when our boss is away or our authority is away. And so my hope for you this morning, ECC, is that you would be faithful servants as you wait for the king to return. So how will you live your life over the next few days, weeks, months, and ultimately years? Well, when we look at par this parable here, we're going to look at three stages. We're going to see why Jesus is telling this parable. And then we're going to spend a majority of our time looking at this parable and seeing what happens in the story. And then we're going to see three verdicts that King Jesus, the king, declares. First, let's look at why Jesus shared this parable. So let's look at verse 11. Why don't you look down with me as we read verse 11. It says this, As they heard the things... These things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Well, who's the they in this, right? They, it's a basic question, but they is the crowd, right? And so if you remember earlier in chapter 19 when Jesus enters Jericho, there's this crowd and then there's this man named uh, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, as you know, the song goes, he was a wee little man. And for some reason, people always refer to me as Zacchaeus. I, I don't know why, but yeah. So here he is, 40 kilometers from Jericho to Jerusalem, and there's this crowd and they're following Jesus. And Luke here points to two reasons of why Jesus shares this parable. He says, because they're nearing Jerusalem. And number two, they suppose that the kingdom would appear immediately. You know, before summer, uh, my family left to the U.S., we went on a trip to Greece. And my kids, had been, we had been talking about this for several weeks, several months. We had planned this trip. And when we got on the plane, we're excited. We get over there, and we're about to land. And the pilot gets on the, on the audio, you know, and says, this is your captain speaking. Uh, we're about uh, 20 kilometers from the landing. We're going to start the landing. So my kids get excited, right, because they feel the plane going down. They open the windows. You guys have all experienced that. You're looking out the window. There's an excitement there. You're near to the destination. And there's also an expectation that my kids have when we land, right? They're going to expect that we have fun. They're going to expect that we eat a lot of food. 
They're going to expect that we have some fun memories together and that we go snorkeling and we do all these things. And in the same way, the crowd that's walking these 40 kilometers from Jericho to Jerusalem had this expectation as they near Jerusalem. The thing is, they expected it to happen immediately. And you know, throughout Israel's history, they rejected Yahweh and they demanded a king. And even if you look at 2 Samuel 7, you see this Davidic covenant where God promises that he would establish his kingdom through David. And now here's Jesus nearing Jerusalem, establishing his kingdom because he'd been talking about it. But what happens? They thought that he would rule. And in a sense, they were right. He would rule. He would be king. But Jesus would not establish the kingdom the way that they thought. He wouldn't establish it then and there. Also, he would be crowned king, but he would first wear a crown of thorns. Jesus would triumph over Rome, but he would first have to suffer on a bloody cross, enduring pain. And he would triumph over Rome, but he would also triumph over sin. And so Jesus would be more than a king. He would be the king of kings. And so this is why Jesus shares this parable. He reminds the crowd, he reminds us that his kingdom is coming. And so what happens in this story? Let's look together at verse 12 through 15. He says this. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now here's this nobleman going on a journey to receive for himself this kingdom. And if you're like me and you're reading this, you're thinking, I don't get it. He wants to rule there, but he goes away just to come back to say, I'm ruling here. Well, what Luke is doing there is telling us, hey, what, what was happening in this context? How did government work? And so here, this king, the nobleman, would go away, and Caesar in Rome would say, yes, you are the king. And he'd go back, and he'd be like, hey, guys, I actually went to Rome. Caesar appointed me king, so now it's official. And you see, this is really pointing to Christ. We're introduced to Christ in a sense here. You know, we're introduced to other characters. Who's the great king in this parable that's gone away and will return? Who do you think? Jesus, that's right. Not hard, we got it. Who are the servants? We're introduced to servants. So who are these servants? Yes, Christians, disciples, those who are faithfully serving, you and me, who are faithful servants of Christ, who've repented and trusted in Christ, and we've looked to him. That's who the servants are. What about the enemy in this story? Those who are slaughtered before the king. Who is that? Well, those are many people who willfully reject this king. They reject him. Maybe there's some here in this room. Maybe some of you have spouses or friends or coworkers or neighbors who willingly reject the gospel and reject Christ. Well, now we're introduced to not a character, but an object. We're introduced to a mina. 
So I want to ask you a question. What, what is a mina? Well, a mina is about three months worth of wages. It's a fair amount. It's not a lot of money to the point where you could retire, you know, but it's three months worth of wages. And so what we see here is this good king gives every one of his servants 10 minas. But in Luke 19, I think a mina represents more than just three months worth of wages. I think a mina here is everything that we have. I think it's everything that the good shepherd, the good king has given you and me. I think it's something, it's everything that God has given us to steward over. It's our life and all that it encompasses. It's our finances. It's our apartment. It's our villa. It's our weekdays from 8 to 5 p.m. It's our evenings from 5 to midnight. It's our weekends. It's your body. It's your health. It's your education. It's your words. It's your speech. It's your finances, it's your decisions, it's your time, it's your thoughts. It's everything that God has given you. It's the clothes that you are wearing right now. It's everything that this great king has given us to steward over. So the question then becomes, how should we view our minas? Do we view it like, this is mine? Whoa, 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 I've worked hard. I've put in the hours at work. I've paid for this car. I've paid for this clothes. I've paid for that vacation. I've paid for my retirement. I've bought that land in my home country. That's mine. Or do we view it the way he tells us in verse 13? Let's look at verse 13. He says, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. In other words, you and I are called to be faithful with what God has given us and not just steward it and hide it. That's what he's saying here. So our skills, our body, our health, our homes, everything has been given to us by this good king. And so maybe you're there and you're asking yourself, well, why? Who cares? It's my stuff. Well, he tells us again in verse 15, the answer to that question. It says this, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. You see here, this king in this parable has returned. And now this parable is pointing us to the second coming of Christ, to when Christ comes back and we have to give an account, a reminder that you and I will give an account to God for everything that we've done, how we've stewarded over our lives, our possessions, our skills, our finances, our minas. Here the king warns of his return. And not only that, but he warns us of his judgment. I'll tell you what, this should cause you and I to reflect upon our lives and think to ourselves, how do we use our minas that God has given us? How do we reflect on our time? How did I spend this morning? How did I spend this past weekend? How did I spend this past summer? What did I do? Did I waste it? Did I do what I said I was going to do? These goals that I had to grow in my faith, to read the word, and then all of a sudden, pff, it's gone? It should cause us to reflect on everything. Are we being productive or are we wasting time? What about our finances? This should cause us to reflect on our finances. How do I spend my money? Do I invest in things that just rust and burn and won't matter eternally, or do I spend it to the kingdom what about our bodies? Are we using our bodies as living sacrifices? What about our apartment, our villa? Are we using that, the mina that God has given you, to invite the people next to you, 
to invite apprentices. We have some here today that just arrived. To invite your neighbors so that you could share the gospel. To invite your coworkers. That villa that you worked so hard for is a mina that God has given you. And the Bible is clear. We will give an account for every decision, every act, every thought that we have. You know, the gracious God has given us a mina even when we don't think it's a mina. Maybe some of you here are single and you think to yourself, how is that a gift? The gift of singleness. Well, maybe you have extra time. Have you invested in others? Those who are gifted with the gift of marriage, how are you using that for God's glory? Are you praying for your spouse? Are you listening to them? Are you caring for them? Are you shepherding them? You know, how do we spend our years, our months, our hours, our minutes? You know, the Bible's clear. We're going to give an account to God for how we spent everything. In the end, our title doesn't matter. The fact that you have the word doctor in front of your name doesn't matter. The, how much money you have in your bank account doesn't matter. How much land we have doesn't matter. We will give an account. So the question isn't if we will give an account, but when and how we will give an account. Will we stand before God completely, just bare bones, there before God, answering questions and feeling the judgment of him? Or will we be excited and thanking him for what he's done? Will the king look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will he look at you and say, depart from me. I never knew you. You know, we will stand before God. And when we do, we will receive his final judgment. No more second chances. That's it. His final verdict. And in Luke 19, what we've seen here is Jesus shares this parable or why he shares this parable is what we see. We also see what's happening in this parable. And then the king shows us three verdicts that he's ready to hand down to these people. Let's look together at verse 16 through 19. We're gonna look at three verdicts. And the first verdict is this. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Now in these two verses, we see two faithful servants. The first servant who's been given 10 minas actually makes 10 minas. That's a 100% profit. I mean, that's pretty good. That's, uh, that's a God thing, right? And that's not the norm, but he does it. He does a 100% profit. And this is an incredible return on the king's investment. And so the king's response, his jaw drops, gives him a high five. Man, great job. You're over 10 cities. Obviously, you're capable. Obviously, you're competent. You can en- you've been engaging in business like I, I had you do. And now here's 10 cities. The second servant... He doesn't quite double it, but he still does pretty good, a 50% profit. I mean, 50% profit's still really good. It's not bad for a bad day's work, right? What if I could say, hey, I've got a way to increase your your salary by 50%. You wouldn't be like, nah, that's not too much. You'd be ecstatic. You'd be like, tell me how. Well, here, any company, all right, we see him increasing it by 50%. Any company would be happy to increase their profit by 50%. Apple would be happy to increase their 
profits by 50%. Tesla would be happy to increase their profit by 50%, right? After I discovered Shakshuka Paratas at Justy, they have increased 50% of their profits. You see, the king's response here to the second servant is very similar to the first servant. High five, great job, fist bump. If you're my son, he goes, peace. That means good. And he gives them five cities. And see, these are two amazing rewards for two very faithful servants. But I think what's even better than these two faithful servants is we see how good and faithful the king really is. I mean, throughout scripture, the main character is God. When we look at the story, for example, of Jonah and the big fish and the Ninevites, we tend to focus on them, but we often forget, no, the main character is God. God's the main character in that story. We look at stories like the prodigal son. Who's the main character there? It's the good, loving father. In this story here, we've got servants, but they're not the main characters. The main character is the good and gracious king. So one thing we never see in this section of scripture is the king comparing the two. Right? The king never says, servant number two, man, you, you did good, but... Servant number one did a 100% increase. What's, what's going on? Maybe you could work a little harder. He never says any of that. Rather, we see this king's joy because he's seen two faithful servants. And as a result, you and I walk away from this passage is looking at these two faithful servants, these two different abilities, and these two great rewards, and one faithful king. You know, the king is looking for faithfulness, not only in my life, but in yours He's looking for faithfulness with what we have. And the bottom line is, let's be honest, we all have different abilities. Some of you are better at certain things. Some of you are really good at business. Some of you are really good at baking. Some of you are really good at cooking. Some of you are really good at starting businesses. We have different abilities. You know, I think of a, a woman by the name of Lottie Moon. She lived about 150 years ago, and Lottie was educated she was wealthy family. She came from a wealthy family. She had land. She was, had a promising future. She had a good life. She had everything going for her. And after conversion, after realizing she needed Christ, there was one burning question in her life. And that question was, how can my life be used for Christ? You know, somebody would propose to her, say they wanted to marry her, and she said, I don't, I don't want to be married because she kept asking herself this question, how can my life be used for Christ? And so she turned down her marriage, this marriage proposal, and she took a boat and she left to serve the people of China. Now you gotta remember 150 years ago, uh, Etihad Airways did not exist. It was a long journey to go to China. And she was so burdened to tell these people about Christ. And in that time, as she was there in the villages, she dealt with rejection. She dealt with hostile environments. She was actually nicknamed Devil Woman. And at one point, she wrote back home saying this to the missionaries. Please say to the new missionaries, they are coming to a life of hardship, responsibility, and constant self-denial. You know, Lottie's desire was to share the gospel and her desire to share this resolved with her loving the people. 
She made a decision. She said, I'm going to love these people. I'm going to live in this village. I'm going to dress like they dress. I'm going to speak like they speak. I'm going to learn their customs, and I'm going to love them. And part of the mina that God had given her was that she could bake. So she began to bake cookies. She baked more cookies and more cookies. And the children would come, and they would eat these cookies. And at first, devil woman was accused of poisoning the kids because that's what devil women do, they thought. But she didn't. She loved them. She cared for them. She would bake these cookies, and every morning she'd wake up, and she'd bake these cookies, and the smell of cookies would, would permeate the air, and kids would run up to her, and they'd want these cookies. Eventually, devil woman was known as the cookie lady. You know, the cookie lady used these cookies as an opportunity to share the gospel of Christ. May seem as insignificant as baking cookies, but Lottie was faithful to reach those around her. You know, today her recipe is known as Lottie's Cookies. If you want, Google it, bake some, and you could deliver them to our office. We'd love it. But see, like these two servants, she engaged and was faithful with what she had been given. You know, let's be honest. Some of you have a lot. Others of you in this room don't have much. Don't ever feel like God has shortchanged you, like God forgot about you, like God gave you one mina, but somebody else who has more talents, 10 minas. God has given us all so much. You know, often when my kids, I find myself complaining and my kid's like, hey, are you complaining? I say, I'm sorry. And I always tell them, you know what? I don't have everything that I want, but I have more than I deserve. And that's the truth. And here we see this amazing story of the king providing. But are you using what the king has given you for his glory or are you not? You know, not everybody is faithful with what they've been given. And there are many Christians who hide their minas. And so for them, the king's ready to hand down his verdict. And so let's look at how he hands down his verdict to the unfaithful servant. We've just seen how he's gifted and, and rewarded the faithful servants. Let's look at verse 20 through 25. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And so now, remember, there's 10 minas or 10 servants. He gives them each 10 minas. And then he talks about these two servants that are faithful. And now we're introduced to this third servant. And this third servant is much different than the other two. First of all, his response is much different. Let's look at that. He says he hides his mina in a handkerchief. So he's been given this t these 10 minas, and he puts it in a little handkerchief, maybe shoves it under his bed and says, I don't want anyone to see. I don't want to engage. I'm just going to do my own thing and just stay here. He's chosen not to multiply what the gracious king has given him. He's being lazy. He's being a sluggard. He doesn't engage. 
The other major difference is how he's afraid of the king. Let's look at the first half of verse 21. He says, for I was afraid of you. And let's just stop right there. Why is he afraid of him? I mean, why is the third servant afraid of the king? I mean, what has he seen so far? He's seen the gracious king give away 10 minus to every servant. He's seen the great king give away 10 cities to this faithful servant. He's seen the great king give away five cities to this other servant. And now he's saying, I was afraid of you. It's like, what? Why? He sees the king as a severe man. Again, there's no reason. It's not like the king put this pressure on him and said, here's 10 minas, make sure you get 100% increase or 50% increase or 10% increase. I mean, he didn't say any of that. He just said, why didn't you put it in the bank? I mean, at the very least, get on a mule, right on, right over to ADCB Jerusalem, deposit your 10 minas, and it'll collect some interest. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but collecting interest in a, in a bank account is not very much. It's like 0.10%. But the king is saying, hey, at the very least, out of a thousand dirhams, I would have, you would have made half a fill or something. But he just didn't engage. He didn't want to do anything. And so what does he do? The king takes away his mina and gives it to the faithful servants. So the big question in all this is why? Why did the servant view him that way? Why does he act this way? Well, the answer is because he really doesn't know the king. He really doesn't know the king. The king's done nothing wrong to indicate that he's mean, harsh, or ruthless. And so the king's been gracious. We've seen that. And I think what we see also is this third servant makes excuses for what's been happening. The servant makes excuses for his own failures. He blames, shifts, and tries to turn the focus away from himself and tries to put it on the king. And that's nothing new, right? We see that throughout scripture. We look back at Genesis 3 when, when Adam and Eve are around and they eat of the fruit and God is like looking for them and all of a sudden he's like, Adam, why did you eat of this fruit? And what does Adam do? He hides behind his wife because the woman you gave me. Isn't that very true even for us today? Often when we're confronted with our sin, we tend to think of other reasons or let's, let's get the attention off of ourselves. Uh, we make excuses. Oh, it's because um, I was at work or I was just tired. It's just a very difficult season. Oh, it's because I'm lonely or oh, the pressure that I'm feeling you don't understand. Oh, life is hard. We make any excuse rather than saying, you know what? You're right, God. I'm a sinner. I've failed you. I've been lazy. I've been a sluggard. I've intentionally not engaged my minus. And so, in the end, the servant doesn't know the king. He doesn't see him as good or loving. Although he's part of the community, he doesn't have a real relationship with the king. Now, maybe for some of you, you relate to this servant. You're part of a community. You've been coming to ECC for many years. You've, you've got many Christian friends. You grew up in church. Maybe you even serve in a ministry. Maybe you're even baptized, but deep down you know you don't know the king. If this is you, I want to plead with you. Repent. It's not about appearances. Turn to this loving king. Children, if you're here, I want to plead with you. Repent. Come to faith. Look at this good king. He loves you. He wants you. He wants to see you. He wants to be with you. Teenagers, 
Throw your phones away if you have to. Disregard all these lies and poison that the world tries to fill your brain with. Instagram, Snapchat, all these lies that they try to convince you of. Adults, ask yourself, am I this third servant? Have I just been living in this community, acting as though I'm part of it when really I don't know the king? Humble yourselves, repent. In verse 24, he says, he take, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Here the king takes what he has and gives it to the faithful ones. You see, friends, the king is returning and he comes with a verdict. This unfaithful servant has taken his mina, stuck it in a cloth and hidden it. And you and I can fall into this trap. We're very, we have to be very cautious not to fall into this trap. We can view our time as my time. We can view our minas as my minas. Our life as my life. You know, one of my favorite movies that's turning 20 years old this year is Lord of the Rings. And one of the characters in this movie is named Gollum. And Gollum has this ring that he wants. He wants this ring, this precious ring. And what he does is he says, my precious. And that's his ring. He loves it. He's never wanting to let it go. He's obsessed with it. And inevitably, this ring drives him to madness, to isolation. But as long as he has this ring, he's looking for this ring. He needs this ring because it's his precious. Brothers and sisters, how do you view everything that God has given you? How do you view your mina? Do you view it as my precious time, my precious vehicle, my precious villa, my precious job? my precious money, my precious resources, my precious talents. You see, God has given you so much. Let's not hoard it and keep it to ourselves. Don't hold on too tightly because God has given it away and as we've seen, God can so quickly take it away. So we've seen this king's, the king's verdict to the two faithful servants We've seen his verdict to this unfaithful servant. And now we see this verdict of the king's enemies. Let's look at verse 26 and 27. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. We've come to the end of this parable and we've seen the king's faithfulness. We've seen how good and generous he is, how merciful he is. And now we see the king's verdict on his enemies. It says here that there's destruction. There's judgment coming. Judgment awaits for those who reject the king. And who are these enemies? As we said, it's those who've rejected the king. It's those who want nothing to do with the king. It's those who want to oppose the king and want to be under no accountability, no authority. You see, it's in verse 14. If you go back, he says, we do not want the king to reign over us. These were individuals who did not want the king to reign over them. They are the enemy. Are you the enemy? You know, we often think of that question and we think, well, the enemy is people like Hitler, someone who is monstrous and 
and did unspeakable acts. Or maybe we think of the enemy as a murderer. Or perhaps we think of the enemy as an evil dictator. I'll tell you what we don't think of. We don't think of 17-year-old Ben, who was a nice kid, a good kid, a respectful kid, liked by people, cared for people, not a troublemaker, didn't do drugs. Didn't, I did everything that you're supposed to do as a good kid. But in my heart, I didn't know the king. And so as a result, I was an enemy of the king. You know, non-Christian, if you're here and you are not a follower of Christ, I have the opportunity to share this wonderful news with you. And maybe what you're, you're seeing this, as you're seeing this, you're thinking to yourself, this is cruel. You've been talking about this loving king and gracious king and king who loves and cares. And now we're reading at the end of it and his true colors come out and he's willing to slaughter us before him. How cruel is that? How could you say he's loving? How could he do this? He did this because he did this to his own son. He slaughtered his own son so that you, his enemy, would make, be friends with him so that he could love you for eternity so that he could, he could reign in your life and so that you would be able to submit to him and cherish him for the rest of your life. He loves you enough to warn you this morning, there's coming judgment. There's something bad gonna happen. Now is when you need to repent and turn to him. He loves you enough to warn you of this upcoming judgment. He wants to save you, save you from yourself, save you from the wrath of God. So I wanna plea with you to repent Turn to this gracious king who loves you, who cares for you, who has given you everything that you have. One day, if we remain enemies of God, he will take everything away. You know, Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of God, he sent his son Christ to this earth to die brutally, to be beaten and hung on a cross, mocked, bore the sins of mankind and took on the wrath of God for you and for me so that those who would repent could be with him forever. And upon his death, he was dead for three days and rose from the grave. Death could not contain him. And now he's ascended, he's with the Father, and he tells us here in Luke 19, he is going to return. And so, it's through the king's death on the cross that his enemies can become his friends so that you don't have to face judgment. Repent, let him reign in your life, friends. Brothers and sisters, if you're here, You've done this. You've repented. You've trusted in Christ. I want to remind you, and I want to plead with you, don't waste time. Look at your resources as God's resources. And I know we're so easy to say, yes, of course this is God's time. I know this is God's money. I know this is God's villa. I know this is God's vehicle. But do your actions reflect that? Are you caring for one another as a church? Are you loving one another you know, yesterday at the sports event, I could just look around and I would see so many people gathering together, different cultures, laughing, eating, playing. 
Is that happening throughout the week? Or does it take a special event for that to happen? Are we messaging random people in the church, looking through the church membership directory saying, I'm praying for you. I don't know you, but I'm praying for your holiness. I've never met you. Maybe you can come over. Maybe we can have coffee this week. Or maybe we can go to Awada Mall the following week. Is that happening? Don't view your mina as just yours. View it as a wonderful gift from God. And so, how will you wait for the king? How will you act as we wait for our boss to return? Will we engage or will we just put it in a handkerchief and stick it under the bed? Let's pray. Father, we come before you thanking you for your precious word that gives us life. And God, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would change us, and that you would um, guide us in our life. We need you. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.